Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. If you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast, then please subscribe to the rest of the podcast. Share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a kind review. It will really help with Nutritank's mission to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Hello everyone, I'm your host Ali Jaffe and welcome to today's episode on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. It is my absolute honour to welcome today's guests on this episode of the podcast, two leading lights when it comes to lifestyle psychiatry and they're also going to touch upon the importance of talking about men's mental health. So first up is Dr Joseph Firth. Joe is a Presidential Research Fellow at the University of Manchester where he completed his PhD focusing on the benefits of physical exercise as a treatment adjunct for young people with psychosis. Joe has published over 100 articles on the interface between physical and mental health, including some in leading medical journals such as the BMJ, The Lancet Psychiatry, World Psychiatry, JAMA Psychiatry and the American Journal of Psychiatry. Joe's research has also received coverage from leading press outlets such as CNN, Forbes and the BBC. He is passionate about He's passionate about developing pragmatic and impactful programs designed to help young people with mental health problems to adopt healthier lifestyles and benefit from the positive effects of exercise on our mental and physical health. Next up, joining Joe, we've got Dr. Gregory Scott Brown. Greg is a psychiatrist and wellness advocate based over the other side of the pond in Texas. He's a leading voice in supporting evidence-based holistic mental health treatments and prevention. Greg is also the founder and director of the Centre for Green Psychiatry, an Austin-based outpatient clinic. He is also an affiliate faculty member at the University of Texas Dell Medical School. Greg too has widely published in academic journals and the mainstream media, as well as currently serving on the advisory board for Men's Health magazine. Greg supports an integrative approach to health using a combination of conventional Western treatments with with non-pharmaceutical therapies such as mind-body medicine meditation and physical exercise. He is also an advocate for the therapeutic benefits of yoga and is even a registered yoga teacher. Greg created and hosted 15 episodes of his own podcast, This Is Mental Health, which I can't get enough of. So, um, Joe, if you want to go first. Yep, so hi everybody, I'm Joe Firth from the University of Manchester. Very happy to be on the podcast with Ali and Greg today. Um, and I got into lifestyle medicine and mental health. Actually, before I got into research, I was working as a wellbeing worker with young ex-offenders and really just seeing the benefits of physical exercise um, for them physically and mentally made me take a greater interest in that area. And that's when I started um, looking at getting into actual research because I noticed a lot of the exercise that was being done in that context was just kind of ad hoc and not really considered part of evidence-based care at that point. So 
I became interested in what type of research would have to be produced to um, address that. And then that's when I started my PhD in Manchester, looking at the benefits of exercise in youth with psychosis. Amazing. And Greg? Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Gregory Brown. Uh, I'm an Austin-based psychiatrist uh, in Austin, Texas, United States. Um, I am an affiliate faculty in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Texas Dell Medical School, founder of the Center for Green Psychiatry, um, an outpatient wellness clinic, and a health advisor for Men's Health Magazine. Um, I got into lifestyle medicine. Um, you know, there are a couple of routes. I'd say the first path was my own experience with depression uh, when I was in my early 20s. I found that yoga was something that was uh, quintessential uh, to my own recovery. And then later on in residency, I found that patients were coming to the clinic. We were treating them with medications and psychotherapy. We're really missing some of the other interventions when it came to conversations about spirituality, conversations about uh, nutrition, uh, conversations about mind-body medicine. And so um, I like to incorporate all of those in my clinical practice. And I think patients are, are really appreciative of that. So uh, thank you so much, Ali and, and Joe, for participating in this conversation with me today. Absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing your personal experiences. So, Gregory, if we start with you, could you just start off by telling our listeners who are mainly UK based what green psychiatry is? How did this term come about? And what's the kind of situation with green psychiatry within the States and the rest of the world? So green psychiatry is an evidence based holistic approach to health and wellness. Um, this clinic that I've started here, the Center for Green Psychiatry um, in the Austin area, uh, there are five of us who work here in the clinic. There are two psychiatrists who are integrated-minded psychiatrists. They um, essentially rent space for us. And then um, there are two uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners who work with me. Three of us here are registered yoga teachers, so mind-body work is something that is front and center um, in our approach with patients. We talk about, again, nutrition. We talk about uh, supplements. I do prescribe medication, so I don't by any means disavow conventional care. Um, but again, you know, integrative uh, mental health care is something that is growing in popularity. Um, patients are asking for it. Um, they're not wanting to go to a psychiatrist who's just going to prescribe medications and ignore every other aspect of their life. Um, and I'd say so with that um, in mind, you know, it's, a, it's an idea that has been catching on. Um, and a lot of people are interested in it. Mm -hmm. And so you started the Green Psychiatry Wellness Centre. How far were you into training when you started that? And what has been the reception by your other uh, colleagues who are psychiatrists and may perhaps some of them yeah. be sceptical in this area? How, how did you find you had feedback, your feedback was when you set it up? You go right for the controversial questions right away, Ali. I, mean, I like the know, big I mean, ones. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you have to think about it. So, anytime you're having a conversation, and I don't know what your experience has been, Joe, in an academic center, when you have a conversation about complementary and alternative treatments, um, especially in the academic setting, a lot of people are going to kind of, you know, look down upon that. Um, they think that you're talking about, um, you know, pseudoscience or uh, interventions that are not rooted or supported um, by evidence. And that's really why I wanted to make green psychiatry different. Um, again, I'm not recommending anything that doesn't have um, a long history of uh, solid evidence that's supporting um, its intervention. Again, I won't recommend things to patients just based on anecdotes or um, based on what I think 
absolutely. And all they need to do is really just listen to their patients and see that that's what they want. There's such a demand for it. And, with, you know, we're seeing it on the other side of the pond view as well. It really is an issue within kind of westernised country with how rapidly things have progressed with the food system and just everything from uh, social media to leading more of a sedentary lifestyle it really is the time now that things need to become more holistic and we need to stop siloing off conventional care and lifestyle alternative care it all needs to be packaged together to benefit the person sat in front of you so um if you could just tell our listeners um about some of your inspiring case studies that you've had uh when patients have come into you uh if you could just start off by kind of describing the array of conditions you see and um yeah give us a a case study yeah so i mean in in my clinic i see all types of patients i see patients who struggle with depression anxiety bipolar disorder schizophrenia um, and I, you know, I think that all types of patients, you know, men, women, uh, young, old, despite what their diagnosis is, can benefit uh, from the interventions that we're talking about. You know, one patient comes to mind, actually a patient from my, my training, um, a guy who's been on several different antidepressant medications and was kind of in that group of treatment resistance, right? Mm. So conventional care will say if you fail two medications, that's all you need to be considered a, a treatment-resistant patient. Um, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking there's so many things besides medications that we can implement, and so I wouldn't necessarily lump that type of patient into a treatment-resistant category. Um, but this is a person who, um, through nutritional interventions, again, he was leading a very sedentary lifestyle, was not exercising. Um, basically, his diet consisted of, of junk food and more junk food, right? Um, he, you know, found purpose in spirituality. He ended up uh, becoming a Buddhist, um, became vegetarian, um, changed out his, you know, black coffee for green tea. Again, you guys know green tea um, has a very high component of L-theanine, which is great for uh, anxiety. And this is a guy in a period of a year or two was completely able to come off all of his psychiatric uh, medications um, and, you know, had a period of sustained uh, remission through these lifestyle changes. And so, you know, tons of other cases to discuss too, but I often rely on that case because the case that took place early in my training um, that was very successful. Wow, no, that is truly remarkable to go from such extremes. And when you were in the consultation with him, how did you assess his readiness for change? What was it that you were looking at within the language of how you were communicating and interacting with one another to know that you could actually broach that subject of lifestyle modification? I mean, I think when it came to him, he was just so tired of doing mm. the same thing over and over and over and over again. So he didn't, I mean, he actually came to me yeah. with that in mind. He's like, you know, I, I don't want to do um, another medication. I've been on six or seven of them already. I mean, is there anything else I can do? Um, and again, you know, I think that uh, we don't necessarily just have to wait for patients to come to us and ask us questions like that. We can offer them, um, you know, guidance and, and ideas. But I think it's important that we're at least having those types of discussions with patients and letting them know that there are other options uh, besides medications. Absolutely. And then it's up to them when you give them all the evidence based information to make their own informed decision. 
And yeah, I couldn't agree more. So we're going to delve deeper into the research a little bit later on. But what can our listeners do every day that kind of instills green psychiatry? I mean, I think the first thing that we can do, all of us, is pay attention to our mind. I think Mm -hmm. too often we completely ignore our mind. We pay attention to our body, right? Uh, I think everyone here, the three of us, would agree that there's a connection between the body and the mind. So just navigating the world, um, realizing that, you know, um, you know, our emotional intelligence is something that we need to pay attention to, um, implementing issues related to, to mindfulness, you know, on a daily basis. I don't think that we just have to wait for, you know, our yoga class, you know, one hour a week, you know, in order to implement some of those ideas mm-hmm. that we would learn from a yoga class. Um, you know, things like we mentioned earlier, people are taking a lot more walks now, so just taking time. Uh, especially in the midst of uh, COVID-19 to just slow down and pay more attention um, to our own self-care. I think that's the best way to to implement some of these ideas on a daily basis. Absolutely. And COVID-19, as you say, has been that chance for many, not everyone, to kind of have a go at developing new habits and things like that. Um, So moving on to discussing the research uh, within uh, psychiatry around lifestyle interventions, I know that you've written many articles for different uh, media channels, be it men's health or whatnot. Um, So what has your research actually shown you around the impact of lifestyle interventions in conditions such as um, psychosis or schizophrenia? Well, I mean, and, and I won't limit it to psychosis and schizophrenia, um, but what I will say is that um, there's evidence supporting that, you know, all of these interventions that we're talking about could benefit any any type of patient. So um, not limited to depression, anxiety, psychosis, schizophrenia. Um, there are some, you know, studies supporting that, you know, for instance, the role of omega-3s um, in our diet or in the form of a supplement. Um you know, there, there's studies supporting that one to 2,000 um, milligrams omega-3 uh, fish oil uh, supplement, EPA to DHA ratio of 2 to 1 mm-hmm. uh, can help things like depression, anxiety, can even augment can even augment the SSRIs that we prescribe uh, for those conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we talk about things like movement, right? Um, so I want to be clear that that's not... Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're, you're telling your patient with schizophrenia to go in and sign up for a half marathon. You know, it, it just means that you're, you know, encouraging that they move their body. I mean, things like that um, can help, you know, increase the levels of GABA in the brain, can increase, you know, alpha wave activity on EEGs, uh, can help, you know, you know, induce the, the parasympathetic nervous system um, that would essentially just help things with like anxiety. Um, and help them enter, you know, calm state of relaxation. So again, it doesn't matter what the condition mm-hmm. is specifically. I think that all of these interventions uh, can help any type of patient. Yeah, and I think that's really great for our listeners to hear because you hear so much about these types of interventions helping with depression and anxiety because those are the most common and what's spoken about probably most comfortably in society. But it's really fantastic to hear that um, you know, others at the other end um, of the spectrum of mental illness, it can it can impact anything. Um, and I also want to tap into what you said around lifestyle interventions actually enhancing the um, effectivity of 
um, SSRIs and other psych psychiatric medications. I think that's such an important point to make that, like you say, you're a conventional psychiatrist that has a huge interest in lifestyle interventions and you're also a qualified yoga teacher. So you're looking at how they can all work together. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on this research and how we can kind of distill it to the masses to show them that these two things actually go hand in hand? Well, I mean, you have to think, so medications, my view about medications are that they treat symptoms, right? So, uh, you know, antidepressants do not cure depression. I mean, I, I think we just need to be clear about that. You, you have to imagine a, a man comes in to the clinic, he's gone through a divorce, um, he's severely depressed. If you give that patient Zoloft and then just say, you know, come back in four weeks, I mean, th that's not going to get rid of the fact that he's going through a very difficult time in his life. It might help him sleep a little bit better. It might help some of the physical symptoms associated with um, depression, anxiety. Um, and with that regard, you know, I think that those medications are good things. But mm -hmm. what I'm talking about, again, is long-term uh, sustainable care. So how do you keep how do you keep this patient out of the ditch long-term? I think mm -hmm. the way that we do that is by talking to them about, you know, how to form important relationships, meaningful relationships in their life. How do you uh, find a higher purpose, whether it's through, you know, you know, a spiritual purpose or, or something else? You know, how do you um, learn to, um, you know, make appropriate choices when it comes to what food you're going to put in your body? How do you take care of yourself physically and pay attention to your emotions as well? That's how you keep that type of patient well um, on a long-term basis. Absolutely. And um, another thing, in line with talking about psychiatric medication, I know from my psychiatric placements that you see a lot of patients that are on a complete... Um, you know, concoction of different psychiatric medications and it's led them to have poorer metabolic health because of the weight gain and um, that goes with it. So as a psychiatrist, how do you balance this, the need for that medication, but then the kind of side effects that really are quite damaging to their metabolic health and that can't be great for their self-esteem. I mean, I'm assuming that, I don't know. You've yeah. seen this, could you tell us? You that, that, that's a really, really good question, and I just want to be clear. I mean, there are certain conditions, like if someone has schizophrenia, um, if someone has severe bipolar 1 uh, disorder, then sometimes these medications, again, I'm an evidence-based psychiatrist, but sometimes these medications, putting on these medications is the best thing to do. It's, it's really unavoidable. You have to do it. Um, but at the same time, there are a couple things that we can do to make sure that we are prescribing the uh, lowest therapeutic dose uh, possible, okay? Um, and then the other thing that we can do is make sure we have the, the correct diagnosis. So, you know, I've had patients who come in to see me and um, they've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And actually, when I get a, a clear history, I, I realize, well, you know what? Um, this may not be bipolar disorder. This may be something else. And so... Um, those are a couple of things that we can do to make sure that we're providing safe care. Sure. And so on to the topic of spirituality, uh, Gregory, you've discussed it a little bit here and there. But Joe, I want to talk about the mind-body split with you. And I know you've recently written a paper for The Lancet on protection of physical health in people with mental illness. So why I want to talk about it is so often in society we've had the mind-body split. And this is a reductive concept that kind of looks at 
the mind and the body as separate entities. And I feel from uh, doing my medical humanities degree last year that I feel from the research that's out there, it's really shown that this mind-body split has somewhat molded our healthcare system into siloing everything off into specialties and even more so now subspecialties. So I wanted to just kind of discuss with you a little bit about the Lancet paper that you've recently written and um, just discussing this kind of concept of um, mind-body splitting. Yeah, sure. Well, um, yeah, the, the Lancet Psychiatry Commission on Protecting Physical Health, which is what I'm assuming you're referring to, is really emphasising the importance of providing integrated physical mental health care for people with mental illness. And it speaks to exactly what Greg was talking about just then with regards to, um, you know, the high rates of comorbid metabolic and cardiovascular conditions which we see in mental illness, regardless of, like, say, the, the psychological benefits of, of lifestyle interventions, you can't forget the fact that people with mental illness die 15 to 20 years younger than the general population, largely due to physical health rather than mental health conditions. So it's about, you know, there's automatically an obligation to address the risk factors for poor physical health in mental illness, regardless of what you might think about the the, the mind-body benefits of physical health interventions. And, um, yeah, and, and we speak about, you know, multiple ways of doing that. Part of it is through lifestyle, part of it is through um, making sure that people with mental illness have adequate access to physical health care, because, as you mentioned, the silos um, of health care are unfortunately quite divided into mental and physical, so even though somebody can be receiving psychiatric medications, they might not be getting their metabolic screening, they might not be getting the right access to cardioprotective medications that they're you know, at much greater risk of than the, the general population. And then obviously on the broader scale and the more difficult question is kind of um, an economic and environmental determinants of, of, you know, poor physical and mental health. You know, it's, it's no coincidence that we see the same, you know, social environmental conditions which put people at high risk of obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, of smoking, of all these adverse health behaviours are the same environmental circumstances which put people at much greater risk of the whole spectrum of mental illnesses so that is really the tougher broader societal question which we do try and touch on but there's more immediate obviously implications mm. for clinical care which is more what we're talking about today with delivering lifestyle interventions and basically just looking after people's physical health when you know just because they have mental illness uh, we've got to keep the, the body in mind so to speak as well absolutely and so what do you think this kind of care actually looks like um you know how would you deliver this type of care have you done any work um, where you have delivered uh, behavioral counseling and nutrition and physical activity interventions alongside each other yeah we've done things like that um and a, a key aspect really within that um when you're talking about the lifestyle aspects of it is the um the early intervention so to speak for physical health because Obviously, we know it's easier to use things like exercise and diet and smoking cessation in younger people before the poor habits are ingrained and also before the physical health comorbidities actually arise. It's, it's very hard you know, to reverse a condition like obesity or diabetes or cardiovascular disease with mm. small lifestyle changes later on into those illnesses. It's still important to try, obviously, because you can reduce people's risk. But if really, we know that young people presenting with mental health problems for the first time, even though they might be physically intact at that point, they are at a greater risk. So then it's the time, even though they appear healthier than the later on patients, we've got to you know, treat everybody equally as at risk for physical health comorbidities and really try and direct some more attention 
at least equal attention towards the you know the first presentations of mental illness in younger groups where we might stand to actually gain more benefit from those integrated interventions as well in a preventative approach so that's a core concept um also we talk about the importance of involving other health professionals such mm-hmm. as those you know specialized in in fitness is the the mental health services are some of the most overstretched and under-resourced under-resourced services that we have in healthcare unfortunately and that leads to uh, the extra obligations or demands on the mental health practitioners to look after people's physical health can be overwhelming so it gets overlooked but we're talking about integrating it you know practically as well by bringing on fitness um, exercise professionals dietitians people like this who can actually come in and, and either on a referral basis or actually working within the mental health care services we've seen a lot of success with that um to become part of that multidisciplinary team really for taking care of the body and the mind together so they're kind of like the practical components of the ideology of protecting physical and mental health together sure and um have you done any trials or anything kind of with this model uh, that you can share off your findings with with our listeners well yeah the the, the lancet psychiatry commission involved a whole bunch of researchers who've done lots of um you know very impressive trials all over the world um the, the one that i led um is less impressive in just a small study in, in manchester um was with regards to what we the IDEEP study was termed um, investigating the benefits of exercise in early psychosis. So that was just a, a really an exercise intervention, uh, studying that in young people with um, early psychosis. And we did see, you know, significant benefits for their physical health and for their mental health. So that's a nice result. And we've tried to set that up since in Sydney in the real world, so to speak, by developing an exercise on referral system, which basically connects the um, health services, the mental health services with the local community leisure centres so that they have that point of contact with the personal trainers there and then people who are showing up at mental health services can get free personal training sessions and introductions to the gymnasium environment and some, you know, uh, say a three-month free period where they don't actually have to pay and then support um, membership, you know, based on their means and resources since then to try and encourage them towards engaging in exercise and that's been fantastically successful that's a take charge scheme led by the belgravia leisure group and that's taken over 300 people with mm-hmm. mental illness through their um program so far in just you know just a couple of years and that's still growing and spreading across sydney so it's been fantastic to be involved in that type of thing and it really just goes to show how popular these types of interventions can be there are always some difficulties with convincing clinicians for um, the reasons that Greg spoke about, there's some scepticism towards lifestyle medicine, but then also just um, there's obviously it, it, it can sometimes seem like it's too much for people with mental illness to take on. You know, we might feel bad about making those lifestyle recommendations, but the reality of the situation is, is different to that. And there are lots of people uh, living with mental illness who do really want the you know the opportunities and encouragement towards um, basically being able to be involved in lifestyle interventions. So it's it's been good to see that working out in the real world as well. Absolutely. And if I can just add, I, just add sure. I mean, that way that, again, patients, if you talk about lifestyle, you, you're handing over agency to them. And so they feel like, hey, you know, this is something that I can do. I can do these things to take back control of my health. And so I think with that regard, I mean, patients are really fired up about that opportunity to participate in their own care. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. all about empowerment and allowing someone to actually have the autonomy to have that shared relationship with their practitioner to help them make the decisions, but then really enact it themselves so that it is a sustainable habit and they can maintain their mental health going forward completely so you mentioned it was in sydney and so i just wanted to ask how come that was the location and are there other hot spots around the world and maybe uh, greg can chime in here too where there are po uh, pockets of good practice like this where there is exercise on referral for uh, psychiatric patients both inpatient with um you know these fitness and nutritional counselors coming into the hospital but then within the community for when they get out yeah, well, we always thought that good practice will spread and, and Sydney was just where we had the opportunity to work with the very generous ledger services over there who mm. were passionate about setting these type of schemes up so we can learn from those models and spread them out. Sydney also has another really good example in their actual early intervention service. They have the Keeping the Body in Mind scheme, which is actually a change like the meeting rooms in the psychiatric services into gymnasiums where they run, you know, training sessions for young people presenting with psychotic disorders. They have cooking classes there led by an actual clinical dietitian um, once or twice a week. And they're really well attended and they've really shown fantastic results in actually even people taking antipsychotic medications. As Greg mentioned, you know, there's obviously quite a few incidences where those medications are necessary. But this program's seen fantastic results that not only improving people's overall recovery, but actually preventing the big decline in physical health that we usually see from those medications, basically mm. blunting, blunting that just through these um, introductions into the service, which is, and they, they are spreading that, they're doing a great job now of, of disseminating that scheme throughout Sydney, throughout New South Wales, and hopefully it'll spread, you know, those principles when yeah. people see that they're effective and cost effective, because obviously it does save money if people are recovering more and not developing comorbidities. Uh, you hope that there it becomes uh, like a, almost a business model for making that standard care eventually, but we're still, you know, early days for that type of thing. Absolutely, and it just sounds like common sense. It just sounds so simple to actually allow these community facilities to be aligned with people who need it the most. And so hopefully yeah. we will start to see it um, disseminate across the world. Um, I was wondering if you had any interaction with the social prescription scheme in the UK, because it sounds quite similar, this exercise on referral um, concept, because with social prescription, it's mainly done in primary care, where GPs, general practitioners, connect their patient who has a chronic condition, whether it's mental, physical, you name it, with a link worker who then knows exactly what community activities that are going on in their local area and can, you know, set them up with going to a cooking class, starting the park run scheme, um, going to a music making class, whatever it is. So um, that's kind of more, you know, primary care rather than secondary care. I was just wondering if it's all, do you think it will all kind of join up or it's quite separate? I think for the time being, it is unfortunately quite separate. I'm, a, you know, personally a fan of the social prescribing initiatives and definitely it's a, a, seems to be a step in, in the right direction. But um, for various reasons, it's not completely aligned with lifestyle medicine just yet. Um, whether they'll head in the same... It's not really something I've been personally involved in. I'm just aware of it happening sure. through primary care. And I'm hearing, you know, lots of great accounts from people who know a lot more about it than me saying it's working. Um, but it's not sex. It probably maybe it's a good thing that it's not focused exclusively on lifestyle medicine. But I think there would be greater potential for lifestyle medicine to grow within that and become, you know, a more uh, recommended and, and standardly integrated part 
ideal platform to start encouraging those type of approaches for mental health in, in primary care, without a doubt. Absolutely, and it takes the burden of the clinician who has 10 minutes because all they have to do yeah. is, yeah. you know, align them with a link worker who knows everything about what's going on. So Gregory, tell us, um, our American friend, what's the situation with this kind of referral scheme in the States? Do you have something similar? I read that in Canada, they have a very similar social prescription scheme to the UK in primary care. I would say it's catching on. There are definitely pockets in the US where, it, you know, they, they, they between the UK healthcare system and the US because ours is all um, free and it's joined up so it can a more standardized approach can be taken so the social prescription scheme does have the ability to disseminate to every GP practice across the UK through a kind of widespread national approach uh, from the government whereas I guess with you guys it's more autonomous and it's more down to that individual clinician to decide how they want to practice. Right. I mean, in healthcare, especially, you know, when it comes to accessing mental health care, it's very, very difficult um, here in the United States. Um, you know, very difficult to find a psychiatrist who is accepting insurance, um, someone who's accepting, you know, your specific insurance. And then, you know, some of the social interventions that you're talking about on top of that can get very expensive very quickly. And so that, that's a huge barrier for patients here. Mm. And within your practice, do you have any schemes that allow um, patients in the or people in the community to access mental health uh, services or facilities for free or for a reduced rate? So I mean that's really on a case by case basis. Here um, I do have a one of my nurse practitioners offers sliding scale uh, for patients, meaning that you know patients essentially um, pay what they can. Um, I have a handful of cases that were charity cases for me. Uh, again, we try not to turn people away if they're really invested in their care and they're willing to, um, you know, do what they need to do to get better. You know, it's, 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 I don't think it's appropriate to just turn people like that um, away. Um, but, I mean, there are other resources in Austin that we uh, refer folks uh, to where they can get uh, mental health care um, at a reasonable price. Sure. So um, moving on to a really important topic and a topic that um, is close to a lot of my team's heart 
uh, especially because the conversation is just becoming more and more open within um, yeah, the student kind of setting. So in the UK, men are three times more likely to die by suicide than women, and the highest rate is among men aged 45 to 49. And the rate of suicide has actually increased by 23% in under 25s. And now talking about the USA, the rate of suicide is also highest in the middle-aged men. And um, men did die by suicide, sorry, men do die by suicide 3.5 times more likely than women. So I'd like to discuss this very sensitive topic with both of you, um, both being male. And so if we start off with Joe, uh, from your research, uh, why are we seeing this public health crisis in both the UK and the USA? And what can we say to kind of attribute why the rates are so much higher in men than in women? That's a bad question for me, to be honest. I, um, I think it's a really tricky one. I don't really have a, a good answer. And I feel it kind of falls outside of the my sphere in terms of lifestyle medicine. Um, I think... We'll pass to Greg as a psychiatrist on board here. To discuss yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I have, a, I have a lot to say about that. Another stat, Ali, that I'm not sure if you came across is that women, so women are twice as likely to be diagnosed with depression. And so one of the, um, one of the, the things that we're taught in medical education, again, is that women are more at risk for developing depression. I think that is, that is, totally, totally bizarre and totally false, right? And so just because women are being diagnosed more with depression mm -hmm. does not mean that they're at increased risk. Men tend to suffer in silence, okay? Right. And so a lot of men, even when they are depressed, you know, they're not telling anyone about it. The other thing that makes it more difficult is that male depression tends to present more as irritability um, than as sadness or apathy. So a man who's depressed might be a little bit more snappy with their partner, uh, kind of have a short temper, and the people around him might not even identify that. Even their spouse might, might not even identify that um, as depression. Another thing you notice is that sometimes, you know, uh, a man will come to my clinic because they're like, you know, my wife has just, you know, had enough with me. Wife brings him to the clinic. And then the man will talk about, hey, you know, I, I just, I have a drinking problem. I drink too much. And really what's going on beneath that is depression. Um, anxiety, for example, there's certain illnesses that I've noticed. Um, and I'm not sure if there's any research to support this. If it's just based on my clinical experience, um, illnesses like ADHD, um, men consider that to be a lot more masculine than admitting to something like anxiety, right? And so they'll come in, they'll say, you know, I'm just having trouble focusing at work. We know that adult onset ADHD, someone presenting with ADHD for the very first time at the age of 48, you know, when they've been able to graduate from Harvard and get an MBA or whatever is very, very unusual, right? And so you really have to, you really have to sometimes spend some time getting at the heart and soul of what's going on um, with these guys. So again, I mean, if men aren't opening up about what's going on, if they have a very difficult time, um, you know, being vulnerable um, about their their personal uh, stressors, their their emotions, uh, again, then they're more likely to just remain silent about it. Um, and as we know, like you mentioned, I mean, those those suicide rates are just they're just alarming. And I think that we can do better. Um, that's part of why I'm so committed to doing the work that I'm doing with, with Men's Health Magazine. Again, um, a lot more people will read Men's Health Magazine 
it's it's so fascinating this concept of wellness advocacy and um i love that in your podcast you interview people from such a different range of backgrounds to actually discuss wellness and so um i wanted to bring this point up to both of you i know that in the uk uh, because there is such a stigma for men to talk about their mental health there have been schemes such as uh, barber shops um having the kind of training to talk to uh the men whose hair they cut about their mental health because it's a easy approachable kind of environment for them to tackle such a sensitive issue that they you know don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about with even their loved ones. So um, what kind of other activities and um, different kind of forms do you think this type of intervention can take on? Um, it'd be interesting to hear your takes as well, Joe. especially because sport is obviously such an important thing in so many men's life. And it is from your work, I'm assuming with um, young people with psychosis, it's a fantastic way to actually get to, yeah, get to the kind of deep level um, of what they need to talk about. Oh yeah, it does really provide a nice platform to start talking about uh, broader issues. Um... I think a lot of people would speak to the benefits of that, even aside from actually, there is, I believe, you know, physiological kind of like neurobiological benefit to actually engaging in physical activity itself, but then also just the kind of the context of physical activity and exercise and the gym environment is where a lot of type of therapy almost can be delivered, either be it by peers who are in a similar position, or if you actually start using that as a structured mental health intervention and engaging people who have training in, you know, obviously fitness, but then also handling mental health issues, trying to deliver some mental health care and, and advice and support, and perhaps even as a pathway towards connecting people to mental health services who might usually feel disconnected. It provides a, a whole new world of opportunities for kind of getting, you know, getting people talking, identifying people at risk, connecting people with the right types of care. So, yeah, I don't think that can really be underestimated at all. And then you've also got the benefits of the actual activity itself. So for, for all those reasons, I'd, I'd highly recommend more emphasis on, on that space and more investment in, in those type of initiatives and interventions, without a doubt, yeah. And you think in the UK we've seen over the years more sportsmen coming forward and talking about their mental health to act as a role model for the young. I mean, in particular, I'm thinking of Johnny Wilkinson, who, you know, one of the UK's top rugby players, um, is very open about his mental health struggles and, um, you know, he's quite invested in well-being now. He started his own kombucha brand, <laughs> Number One Living, who we work with. Um so do you think we've seen yeah. a change in the kind of public in the public eye with people talking more openly around it i think it i think it really has really and it has helped having those um type of celebrity status and particularly athletes who you know do yeah. appeal to um positive characteristics about masculinity such as you know like um just competitive sports and things that people are really invested in we also johnny wilkinson's a good example um, Tyson Fury, you know, obviously the heavyweight boxing champion beat Greg Boy back in uh, February, I think, for the heavyweight title. And he's he's a big advocate of mental health, and he's had his own experience of um, you know mental illness, and I, I believe even to the point of a suicide attempt or something like that, if I've heard his personal story correctly. And he speaks about that quite openly, and his depression and his anxiety. And, you know, for men who usually might feel this, a, a certain stigma about talking about those type of vulnerabilities, you obviously see a character like that 
um, speaking about it and it might feel like oh well you know if he can open up then, then I can be brave enough to open up even just you know to my partner or, or to my doctor or something like that even if you're not telling the whole world so I do think there is you know a positive mm-hmm. role but I think there's also maybe more to be done for actually the uh, the investment in mental health care and, and the mental health services um, like we do have the NHS which is fantastic but the, I think the mental health services are currently quite under-resourced so people speaking about their mental health is one thing but then it's also nice if we had uh, more availability to actually provide them with evidence-based care without the long waiting lists and everything like that i think there has to be you know some input from the government as well to say we're, we're seeing all this extra awareness but let's also make the capacity for extra intervention because mm-hmm. speaking about those problems um if they're whether the problems at work or you know men might be also more likely to have unemployment or addiction issues it's speaking about those things is one thing but then actually getting the the care and the social support to, to manage them is, you know, a, a, another important next step, really, beyond just talking. Yeah, you bring up such an important point. Advocacy is one thing, and then activism is another thing, because, you know, especially looking at what's just happened recently with Black Lives Matters, there's so many people and brands giving it lip service, but it really is about action. And the same with all other issues in society. And that's sometimes what happens. A lot of lip service is given and you don't actually see the activism and action within the kind of societal structures. Um, So, Greg, uh, I want to hear your take on this because I know that you've uh, you've interviewed some really interesting characters on your podcast, like um, football coaches and um, other really kind of masculine men um, in Air Marks this is a podcast you can't see me um so if you could just elaborate on this and whether you've noticed over the years um more role models coming forward and yeah how you feel about this i mean absolutely absolutely i mean Dion waiters he's a um a member of the los angeles lakers that he just wrote an article um referring to depression as fake happiness right and so uh that's the way he described it uh, kevin love has become the poster child for the nba um, he plays for the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers. He wrote a um, uh, personal, personal account of having a panic attack before um, a game uh, that essentially went, went viral. You have rappers like Kid Cudi who's talked about his struggles with addiction and depression. And again, um, you know, putting these men with platforms, putting themselves in these vulnerable uh, positions is, is so, so difficult, but I think it's so beautiful you know, at the same time that they're doing that, um, because again, you know, you have to consider, and again, I agree completely with everything that Joe said about, you know, making sure we have increased access to care, um, that we take it a step beyond just talking about it. We have to realize that a lot of men aren't even at the point where they can even entertain a conversation about admitting to anything that they're going through at all, right? And so me as a shrink, you know, writing about my account, um, is one thing, but it takes a totally different tone when they see their hero, you know, Kevin Love, six eleven, you know, NBA champion, saying, "Hey, you know, I'm this big, masculine dude, and I still struggle with anxiety, and I can still overcome it, and I can still go to a therapist, and I can still get help." Um, I think that resonates a lot mm. more, especially um, with young men completely and these are just some of the ways that we can try and reduce stigma like you say by having your hero talk about such a uh, personal issue what are the ways uh, 
do both of you think that we can reduce the stigma more? I mean, I think it comes to just, you know, doing more of, of this. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm completely for this, having these open, honest conversations, um, having conversations on public platforms. Again, that was really the intent behind my podcast, talking to people who weren't psychiatrists, who didn't have PhDs, who were just out there, you know, um, so that people could realize, hey, you know, these are conversations that, you know, essentially... I've learned that almost everyone is thinking about mental health, even if they aren't talking about it. So let's kind of open up a conversation, open up a dialogue so other people can hear that these are common issues that almost everyone either has faced personally or they know someone who's faced these issues, and let's just normalize it. I think that that's probably one of the easiest things that we can all do uh, to get the ball rolling. Definitely. And Joe? Well, yeah, I, I agree with what Greg uh, just said, actually. And I think we are doing fantastic work in terms of normalising and destigmatizing common mental health conditions. But I don't have an answer for this, but I'll just throw it out there as a question to either of you guys in terms of uh, in our ability to normalise common mental disorders and we start to, you know, associate things like depression with characters like, say, Prince Harry or something, and we kind of get this idea that everything can look fine and mental illness can just be there under the surface. Um, are we are we increasing or are we neglecting the stigma around um, severe mental illness? You know that is schizophrenia and, and uh, you know other like the conditions that might affect somebody with homelessness and the, the more severe end of the spectrum. Do they feel excluded from these mental health conversations just when we're trying to you know propagate this narrative that everything can look fine? people might still have mental illness are we kind of forgetting to try and direct a bit more attention to the people who are most stigmatized by mental illness but also not really reached by these these stigmatizing initiatives so far at the more severe end and i don't have it's kind of a harsh question to ask because i don't have the answer no, we are doing good work to destigmatize the common disorders but i just thought i'd throw that one out there for our conversation well, I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a string who's just full of hope, <laughs> and so I'll, I'll say this, you know, I have, I have worked with so many patients with schizophrenia, Joe, who have gone on to get PhDs, who have completely normal, I mean, you would look at them and you'd have no idea um, these people are even sick, right? And so, yeah. obviously, with any condition, whether it's depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar one, there is a, a wide spectrum of severity, right? You have depressed yeah. catatonic patients who are not able to work, who are not able to function. I get that. And you have people on the other end with schizophrenia, for example, who are very high functioning. So, um, I, I mean, I agree with you. Perhaps we should spend a little bit more time um, sharing some of those hope narratives with more chronic, um, about more chronic cases and letting people know that, you know, even if you um, are given a diagnosis of bipolar one, things things can be okay. You know, it doesn't have to mean that this is the end of your life, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's good, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it is really interesting um, just think about everything on a spectrum. And something that really touched me was when I went to a conference a couple years ago called PsychArt. It was a conference in London that um, psychiatrists put on to show the importance of art within uh, mental health care. And so there were lots of different workshops throughout the day from creative writing to um, uh, drawing, who knows. 
And uh, what was really interesting is there was a talk given by a psychiatrist who led a play production with his patients um, who had all different conditions and they actually uh, formed a charity and they started this whole movement of acting and um, they got the staff involved as well in the hospital and they started putting on plays and they'd all dress up and um, they'd, they, it was somewhere in East London and they'd put them on for the East London community. And what was amazing is that you just didn't know who was a staff member, who had schizophrenia, who had severe depression. And it was just such an equalizing platform. And it was something that really stuck with me, how even within uh, psychiatry, the different mental illnesses sometimes get siloed off and different narratives are applied to each of them. But there are certain ways of bringing people with mental illness suffering all together, no matter kind of what the spectrum is, if they are able to perform, of course, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, in NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, I think is doing a really good job um, of bringing people in with all sorts of conditions, you know, having them serve as, as advocates within certain communities, mm, mm. their whole narrative. Um, there's a NAMI walk, um, mm. you know, every year, I think they have in different cities in the United States that we know my clinic participates in it. Um, and again, kind of like you said, when you're in the NAMI walk, some of those folks are patients, some of them are psychiatrists, some are professors, you have no idea. It's just an opportunity for people to get together you know, walk for a common cause. And I think we need more of that. Absolutely agree with you. So um, moving on to something um, I find very interesting. Joe, um, I know you've done some really interesting research in hand grip strength. Uh, could you just elaborate a little bit on that and discuss the kind of benefits of strength training? Yeah, sure. So there is more um, evidence for strength training. Obviously the focus of the academic uh, base so far has been in aerobic exercise and that's where the majority of randomised control trials have been conducted showing benefits for depression, anxiety, schizophrenia and other health conditions. But increasingly, you know, strength training is becoming more popular, first of all, across society. So there's more demand for that. Um, just be, you know, when we talk about strength training, that can be in a gym, obviously, is the most popular environment, but then also sports that involve strength aspects or even like outdoor boot camps or home-based um, strength activities. And there's an increasing demand for this and also alongside that an increasing literature around it. And we've produced uh, research looking at the associations between physical strength and things like cognitive functioning and depressive symptoms showing that people who are actually maintain a higher level of physical strength are more likely to show high levels of cognition and and better um, lower levels of depressive symptoms and things like this. But then also alongside that, there's a, um, a quite a vast evidence base that engaging in resistance training and the RCTs are out there now to show that that also can improve your mood, reduce your anxiety mm -hmm. and things like this. So, but really, it's, it's not to recommend one over the other. I, I, I like the mentality of saying, if you're going to be engaging in exercise, the best type of exercise will ultimately be what that individual is actually going to engage with. There's no point trying to force someone to do strength training if they prefer to go for a run. One's not better than the other, but just to say, um, uh, you know, both preferences are evidence-based choices for improving your mental health, and that's the, you know, that's the message that's coming from the data so far. I'm not sure what Greg thinks about like particular forms of best types of exercise for mental health or what he'd recommend in these clinical experience would be interesting. Greg so, is a lovely yeah. yoga teacher and that's yeah that's my form of 
um, exercise. So I'd be really keen to hear about um, his, yeah, your practice with yoga and with your patients. Yeah, I mean, before, before I talk about yoga, I'll say that. Um, so when I when I opened up my clinic, Joe, one of the uh, nurse practitioners working with me, um, you know, she said to me, you know, how, how can you how can you tell someone that they need to exercise more if they're so depressed they can't even get out of bed to make themselves a sandwich, right? And since then, I mean, that is a question I've been asked over and over and over again. Um, we talk about best forms of exercise. Let me be clear that I'm just talking about moving your body, right? And so I think that, you know, as long as if someone is, if the only thing they're able to do is get up and walk to the mailbox and check the mail and then come inside, that's better than not doing that. And so I would say, let's start there and then work our way up. Ali, you are 100% correct. I am a yogi. I'm partial to yoga. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm happy right now because I've been to my yoga studio once since March 10th, and it's just driving me nuts. So I'm having to do yoga at home, do yoga outside, which has been a nice, uh, nice change. But one of the reasons why I, I love yoga so much is, again, if you're thinking about that balance between uh, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system, you can really work on both. You know, in a yoga practice, you can get the heart rate up. Um, you can also do some pranayama breath. You know, you can slow things down. You can pay attention to your body, knows what it's like, kind of uh, pay attention to what it feels like when you're anxious and the parasympathetic nervous system is, you know, in full force um, and also what it's like to bring that down. And so I think that any type of mind-body practice, I would be a little bit more partial to. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I, I talked to a patient yesterday who told me that going to the gym and lifting weights, that's what does it for him, right? It doesn't necessarily do it for me, but it does it for him. And I'm not going to tell him to stop doing that and start doing yoga because his wellness consists of going to the gym and lifting weights. So most important thing is that um, people are moving their body. Absolutely. And Joe, am I right in saying that you found a dose-response relationship between um, lower grip strength in men and um, those who had more suicidal thoughts? Yeah, that, that was one of the papers um, in, in, among the literature, but it does kind of mock, you know, just speak broadly to the connection between physical fitness and sure. mental health. That's not to say it's separate to um, people, you know, feeling depression, feeling of anxiety and things like that. And also you've got to bear in mind there is, uh, you know, that's a, that's a cross-sectional finding. So you might just find that people who are experiencing um, suicidal thoughts or have got poor mental health might also have, well, a much higher risk of poor physical health, which is then going to have an impact on their physical fitness and, and strength as well. So we can't really draw too much from those type of findings, but I think there is compelling evidence now from from RCTs and, and clinical trials of resistance training to show it can actually effectively reduce depressive symptoms. Um, so that, that speaks really to a, a more gold standard evidence base in that area. Sure. And Joe, I know your colleague, Brendan Stubbs, who couldn't be on the podcast today, has worked on some recent research around yoga and mental health. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about it. Yes. So there's been a, a, a new meta-analysis published um, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine showing that yoga is an effective intervention for reducing depressive symptoms. Um, as Greg probably would expect, and probably also very aligned with what Greg was just saying about yoga having a nice body, um, a nice balance between activating and also calming. They found that the types of yoga that were more physically active were actually more beneficial than the ones based mostly on, say, 
the, the chanting and the, the spiritual aspects alone, the ones that involve that physical active component seem to be more beneficial for, for mental health benefits um, in the studies that they reviewed. So that's quite an interesting finding. And again, it, you know, exactly like Greg was saying, I'm just repeating what Greg was saying in terms of some people like yoga, some people like the gym, so you wouldn't want to recommend exactly. one over for any given individual. But it's nice to know that you know, a whole spectrum of different types of physical activities and exercise regimes can be considered evidence-based care for mental illness. Absolutely. And Gregory, can you tell us a little bit about how you instill um, your yoga teaching kind of hat within your practice as a doctor? Right. So so my office, I mean, we have meditation cushions. Sometimes I'll do entire evaluation. I mean, depending on if the patient's able to, sometimes we'll sit on the floor, literally, um, and we'll do the encounter um, just sitting on the meditation cushions. I do a lot of breath work with patients. So something that I find... um, really help change the tone of a psychiatric encounter is if you start off the encounter because a lot of people again they're holding on to all of this stuff that happened uh between the last visit and the time you're seeing them um, and you can kind of see them in the waiting area holding that in and they're just waiting to spill it all out as soon as they sit down in your office so sometimes just starting off an encounter with like two minutes uh, of breath work can really help settle things down calm the mind a little bit um, I ask patients to pay attention to their, their body and their mind. Tell me how their body feels. Tell me how their, their mind feels. So, again, my office is obviously not a, a yoga studio, but I think that we can incorporate some simple things um, like breath work in, you know, in a common encounter. And then, you know, extending from there, you know, I'll, I'll talk to patients um, about things that they can do um, at home, too, as far as, you know, introducing uh, simple movements um, into their life. Absolutely. And um, how do you feel when you're kind of approached by patients who are somewhat resistant to taking up a lifestyle intervention or something like yoga when you're a huge advocate of it? How do you I go mean, about that? Yeah, I, I meet patients where they are. Again, it's, it's about what they're, um, what they're looking for. Again, I'm, I am clear with all of my patients that I'm not a, a pill pusher and if that's all they're looking for, Um, I'm honest with them, you know, and I share with them, you know, I I don't necessarily think that that this is going to be the best for your long-term recovery, you know, and sometimes patients are on board with that, sometimes they're not, Um, and so, I mean, sometimes patients like that will eventually, you know, come around and, you know, show more interest in these types of interventions, sometimes they'll say, you know, thank you very much, you know, I'd, I'd rather go to someone and spend 10 minutes with them and just get my medications refilled and you know I, I respect them for their decisions so um, you know I, I often tell patients you know you are the captain I'm, I'm your assistant so that's kind of how I, I like to practice yeah very good very good analogy I like that a lot and so do you think there is some sort of stigma or resistance when it comes to men being associated with yoga I've recently listened to your masculinity and wellness podcast um, if you could just like elaborate on that a bit. I, I do, and what a lot of guys don't realize, so the original yogis were a group of men, right? So for a long time um, in, you know, in, in India, um, women didn't even practice yoga. And so, um, you know, obviously it's a practice right now that more women are engaged in uh, than men, but I think sometimes just reminding men that yoga is a practice that can not only benefit women but can benefit men as well I share with them the fact that I do yoga um, you know sometimes I'll share 
And so, again, just instilling this idea of curiosity before judgment, um, usually I'll tell them, hey, you know, just, just, just try it. Try one class. See how you feel. If you don't like it, you don't have to do it again. Um, I'd say a good 70% of the time, you know, once they try it, they're like, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, and I actually felt better afterwards. There we go. <laughs> That's convincing <laughs> enough. <laughs> And so in light of, we're coming to wrapping up, in, in light of COVID-19, it's been found that those who have led more of a sedentary lifestyle and have had more issues with their metabolic health have actually had great, uh, worse outcomes when they've been inflicted with COVID-19. What are your thoughts on this and how can we promote more lifestyle interventions for physical health? And then with the aftermath of COVID-19 and the trauma and everything, how can we promote lifestyle interventions for mental health? Down for me? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I think the, the number one thing that I always advocate is that we, we keep moving again. And right now, it's really easy to just, you know, become idle. Um, because we have more time, it's really easy to just get bored. But, you know, I believe that there's a lot of power in perspective. And you can look at the fact that we have more time as, hey, this is more time for me to actually get outside. This is more time for me to, again, if I'm not spending an hour a day commuting to and from work, uh, this is more time that I have to try out a workout routine online. Um, a lot of people, especially men, are intimidated by yoga because they don't think they're going to be good at it. They think people in class are going to be judging them. If they're sitting in their house or in their apartment, no, no one is there with them, right? They're doing an online class, and that's one barrier that's just not there anymore. And so, again, just encouraging people as best as they can uh, to use this time really as a learning opportunity. We don't know when the coronavirus is going to be over, but what we do know is that at some point it will be over. Life will go back to normal. And so if we can take this as a learning opportunity, I think we'll be in better shape um, on the other side than we were when we came into this. Absolutely agree. Very wise words. And so the dreaded question and the one you say both of you get all the time, for patients who are so severely unwell, and like you said, your nurse practitioner said, how can you expect someone to exercise and take up lifestyle modifications if they can't even get out of bed? What are your thoughts on this and how can we come to a somewhat happy medium when we talk about uh, lifestyle psychiatry? And we start, start small. Again, you can do yoga in a chair. You can um, do simple stretches laying in bed. Again, if someone can go get up and go to the bathroom, then they can move the body. Um, we're not talking about running a marathon. We're not talking about doing a 90-minute hot yoga class um, or hitting the gym. Start where you can. Um, most of the time, people start to notice, even with those little small interventions, um, they notice that they're feeling a little bit better, and that can in many ways inspire them um, to pick up the pace as they find themselves um, in a better place. And Joe? Yeah, I'd agree with what Greg just said. Um, and also, you can just focus on one thing at a time as well. For instance, somebody might, want, if, we, if we're talking about lifestyle, it can be tempting to try and fix someone's diet, their exercise, their sleep, and everything all at once. Whereas it's about meeting people where they're at with their own priorities. And maybe it might be about getting the sleep right. And then, then they might feel like moving a little bit more from you know day to day, taking up some exercise. And then you should, uh, people naturally come about as you introduce one positive lifestyle change 
people naturally kind of come to other things and it springs to mind to start thinking about your diet and your, your, maybe even your mindfulness and things like this can. So not to try and, you know, somebody who's struggling to engage in one behaviour, not to try and, you know, bombard them with everything at once and meet people where they're at in terms of what their priorities are, in terms of what they'd like to try and start with, really. Um, and obviously, yeah, like Greg said, just starting small and, and making changes that people feel comfortable with. Absolutely. And one last very important question. How can we make lifestyle psychiatry inclusive for everyone? So it's not just for the worried well, it's accessible for all. And how does it apply to everyone from different ethnic backgrounds where mental health may be really hard to talk about and there may be barriers in that sense? That, that question always comes up and I've never really understood it. I mean, it, moving your body is, is complete. It doesn't cost anything, right? And so. Going for a walk is, is completely free. Uh, getting some vitamin D from the sun is completely free. I mean, this is we're not talking about wellness as being an elitist sport, right? Um, and we're also not talking about enjoy like joining an expensive gym or an expensive yoga studio. Um, we're talking about taking back control of your health, um, you know, paying attention to your mind, uh, appreciating the little things in life. Again, and I feel like if people are doing that, if they're doing what they can to take control of their health, um, then that to me is the essence of, of wellness and it's something that we can all have at no financial cost. And on the subject of it being applicable for um, everyone from different ethnic backgrounds and how do you as a clinician try and, um, you know, always have that kind of sense of cultural competency when you're talking to someone from different background? I mean, I do it by sharing a little bit of my story. I find that people have a very difficult time opening up to a complete stranger, even if that stranger has a bunch of degrees behind his or her name, right? Because it's like, who, who am I talking to? So, um, again, I've written publicly about my own issues. You know, I talk about my love for yoga. Again, keeping in mind that the encounter is about the patient, not me, but I find that if I'm able to share just a little bit about my, myself, my personal journey, then it makes patients feel a little bit more comfortable sharing with me about their own um, personal journeys uh, as well. Wow, that's incredibly inspiring and I think such a kind of modern way that a doctor kind of practices. I just think it's amazing that you feel comfortable enough to be on that level with your patient in such a shared partnership where I feel like 20 years ago where it was far more patriarchal a doctor never would have opened up to their patient about their personal experiences but you've made the interaction far more human right I mean we can't ex we can't hold our patients to a higher standard I think that that's um I don't think that that's realistic so um more people more people are starting to navigate um psychiatric encounters with this approach and I think it's for the better absolutely and Joe do you have anything that you want to elaborate on all my research stuff is super boring compared to Greg's like clinical experience stories so I don't really have I, I can't do a finishing note after something like that can I really <laughs> oh I think you guys complement each other very well so um, just to finish up, what resources can both of you signpost to our audience on this fascinating area of lifestyle psychiatry? I mean, I would say we live in an age where there are tons of apps available right now, um, free apps. So anyone who has a smartphone um, can find tons of resources, you know, online or through these apps that teach mindfulness, that, um, you know, 
know, teach yoga that help people keep track of, of what they eat and, you know, the way that they're living uh, their life. Um, uh, sometimes I think, you know, through uh, apps, people can even start to learn, hey, you know, maybe it's time for me to get some more intensive care if I think that this isn't quite enough uh, for me. But I think the first step is, you know, acknowledging that in yourself and then seeking out um, the most accessible resources that we have at our at our disposal. Sure. And Joe, I know that you're also into digital health apps as well. Yeah, yeah, there is um, an increase in evidence base for apps. And obviously during COVID, one of the very, I guess, a small positive effect is that it really has brought forward the world of digital healthcare um, as we've had to rely on that in the meantime. So there's more options. And even like, you know, home training sessions and like YouTube channels for doing exercise in the home, any type, be it yoga or circuit training or whatever you might want to do. There's a lot more availability and emphasis on that at the moment. So it's a good time to start thinking digitally. But then also I'd encourage people to look to resources in their community. Um, there is actually quite a big emphasis. I'm not really sure in the States, but in the UK, the a lot of the community leisure services um, have almost like an obligation to work with the local authorities and set up, you know, schemes that are accessible for people with mental health problems, be it football groups or some type of exercise referral systems or something like that. So do look at the resources available in your local communities or through your NHS. Um, that can actually signpost you to some really good, except for the digital stuff, real world type of lifestyle-based interventions that are available for free or at low prices in your local community. So I would advise people to look at that too. Absolutely. Wow, another wonderful guest. Stay tuned for new episodes on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. Nutritank is an award-winning, innovative information hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine, with a current mission to improve nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training nationwide. Nutritank aims to empower healthcare professionals and members of the public to improve their health and well-being through diet and lifestyle modifications. Visit Nutritank.com for our membership packages, follow us on social media and join our community. Bye for now. Please note that this podcast aims to educate and not to replace healthcare professionals' advice, so please continue to seek help from your nutritionists, your dietitians and your doctors. Thank you.